0: Good morning, it's Tuesday, the 14th of November, and this is Govind Rajiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day. Retail inflation hits a four-month low, now down to 4.87%. Indian students throng to the United States in record numbers, a quarter of all international students. Why are India's personal income tax collections so high? And takeaways. Massive orders at Dubai Airshow reflect rising aviation demand in the region. And perhaps the best prepared Indian team for the World Cup semi-finals. Sports writer Ayaz Memon with lessons so far and predictions ahead.
1: This is a Core report with Govindraj Athiraj.
0: Retail inflation is down. More size of relief. Retail inflation slowed to a four-month low of 4.87% in October, thanks mainly to food prices going down. Consumer price index-based retail inflation had hit a three-month low of 5.02% in September, and the previous low was around 4.87%, which is the same, in June. So you can see how it's gone up and then come back. So we're back to June. In a manner of speaking, around the time food prices began their steady upward journey and then started shooting up quite dramatically, notably if you remember tomatoes which went to 300 rupees per kilogram and then crashed to a point in September when farmers were dumping it on roads. From inflation to the markets, they began strongly on Sunday in a special and customary Diwali trading session, but the enthusiasm didn't last through Monday. The Sensex fell 325 points to end below 65,000 to 64,933, and the Nifty 50 was down 82 points at 19,443. The markets will remain closed today. That's Tuesday for Diwali. And this is also the day we will take a break. The bulls are not taking a break, though. Goldman Sachs has upgraded India's shares to overweight from market weight, citing strong economic growth prospects, steady domestic mutual fund flows and a potential supply chain shift from China. Indian markets will continue to gain in 2024, supported by steady earnings growth and macroeconomic stability in what would otherwise be a tricky period in the Asia-Pacific region, Goldman Sachs analysts led by Timothy Moore wrote in a note quoted by Reuters. Yesterday, we reported that Morgan Stanley had issued similarly bullish statements and outlook for India. Foreign portfolio investors, however, continue to sell India at this point of time and have been doing so since September into this month as well. The Indian rupee inched up on Monday on expectations that the central bank would ensure that there is no fallout of the previous session's decline to a lifetime low. And some good news, the rupee firmed up marginally to 83 rupees 29 paise against the US dollar and this is from 83 rupees 34 paise on Friday last week. So the Reserve Bank of India is believed to be intervening actively and that belief is obviously sufficient to give the market some confidence or at least traders some confidence. Now we are tracking closely and will continue to do so because the Israel-Hamas war is still raging with considerable loss of life and property as you've been reading or following elsewhere. Oil is now still holding near $81 a barrel after slipping for three weeks. Oil has lost about 12% in the last three weeks, and tensions which ran high after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, have eased off. Analysts at Goldman Sachs told Bloomberg that renewed demand concerns have driven the sell-off, but that consumption has remained robust all year and will likely continue to do so in 2024. The bank has also trimmed its price forecast for next year to $92 a barrel. Elsewhere, in a sign that domestic consumption is strong, on the food side, imports of palm oil and sunflower oil in 2022-2023 surged by about 24 and 54 percent respectively to record highs on a rebound in consumption, Reuters reported. Total edible oil imports in the year have now surged to about 16 million tons. That's up 17% from a year ago. India buys palm oil mainly from Indonesia, Malaysia and Thailand and it imports soy, oil and sunflower from Argentina, Brazil, Russia and Ukraine. So this gives you some sense on how consumption, particularly in the kitchens, is going up and this is something we've talked about in the past but we'll return to in coming days. Tax collections are strong but why? We reported yesterday that direct tax collections have been strong, so much so that personal income tax collections are up almost 31%. So one way of looking at it is that incomes are that much higher this year compared to the previous. Now that could be anecdotally true, but it could also be anecdotally not true. It always depends on who you ask. But there are a few other reasons and I'll come to that. Interestingly, corporate tax collections or the tax that businesses pay on profits rose at a lower level, around 12%, but of course it's rising too. And also remember that these figures are up to the first week of November, which is not the best time to start assessing because this is neither halfway through the year nor is it the end of the year. But what are the broader trends in tax collections and what exactly do they reflect of what's going on on ground? To understand that, I reached out to Mukesh Bhutani, co-founder and chairman of BMR Advisors, a well-known tax and risk firm. I began by asking him how he was reading the overall numbers as well as the personal and corporate tax numbers.
1: Collections have been looking very positive since the post COVID year. And I consider 2021 as the outlier year where the entire tax collection trend was disrupted. But I think you see a very important trend in the pre COVID year collection trends and the post COVID, which is the tax buoyancy. And the tax buoyancy simply is that if your tax collections are growing faster than your nominal GDP, that triggers off a tax buoyancy factor, which has been looking very positive. I don't read much insofar as the trend on personal taxes versus corporate tax collection is concerned because the corporate tax collection, the profitability has been low and as a result of which it is impacting. But I clearly see a reason why the personal tax collections are looking higher. And this has been a consistent pattern again in the last three years, partly one because of the formalization of the economy partly too because there has been a faceless assessment scheme which was introduced as a result of which it is throwing up some very interesting trends on how the government has been using the data for the purposes of tracking either tax evaders or for the purposes of tracking individual taxpayers whose expenses do not match up with their earning capacity. And as a result of which, you are seeing a higher compliance on the personal tax side. As far as the businesses are concerned, which is your non-personal tax collection, because of the GST registration and because of the tracking of the transactions which was happening because of the audited financial statements, generally you are not seeing that uptake as you're seeing on the personal tax side. However, you need to bear in mind that when it comes to non-personal tax collections, businesses tend to kind of pay up for their tax liability towards the end of the year. Most of the personal tax gets collected through the salary TDS, which is equated over a 12-month period. And then there is a catch-up impact that non-personal taxpayers have in the third and the fourth installment, which is on December 15 and March 15. So that could also be the reason. I see really the tax buoyancy continuing in the manner in which it is showing because the at least the quarter-on-quarter profitability of the corporate sectors, at least for listed companies, is not showing much of let up.
0: So you're saying that the personal tax collections have a large TDS component, which means it's linked to salaries. And if that's up, let's say somewhere between, I mean, 30 is the figure, but let's assume it's even
1: lower. But that suggests that salaries have gone up so much. Well, salaries are going up. More employability is happening. Existing employees are moving up the ladder, insofar as the hike in compensation is concerned, as a result of which, when you move into a higher slab rate, the surcharges also keep on going increasing. So, it's also an impact of those factors as well. I don't have the breakup insofar as the personal tax is concerned between the TDS from salaries as compared to the self advanced tax mechanism. But broadly, somebody was telling me that roughly 70 to 80% of the personal tax collection gets collected through the TDS route which is a fairly sustainable month-on-month growth. And only about 20-30% is through the advanced tax system.
0: So how does it look now if you were to look until March 24, including the advanced tax collections or payments that are likely to happen for the next two installments, or rather one advanced tax, one final?
1: Well, finance minister is laughing away to the bank. (laughs) Clearly, uh, the tax collections are looking good. I personally feel that as the faceless assessment scheme stabilizes, it has stabilized to a larger extent, I would see that the individual compliances go up. If you look at another trend, there has been a five-fold increase in individual tax return filing just in the last 10 years. And somebody was telling me the other day, if you look at the post-COVID number of individual tax filers, that is also showing a very robust CAGR increase in the taxpayer. So that also is getting reflected in the personal tax collections.
0: Right. So you're saying that things will equalize, obviously, because all these are spikes because they're cracking down, tightening the news, so to speak. You talked about buoyancy. Is there a measurement for that?
1: Yes, there is a statistical formula to measure the tax buoyancy, which is that if you look at the nominal GDP and If the nominal GDP is growing at X and your tax collections are growing at Y, there is a mechanism to be able to compute the higher buoyancy. So, yes, we have seen spikes of tax buoyancy if you look at the trend in the last 20 years. And clearly, we are seeing again another trend in the post COVID recovery period, which is financially 21 22. Now, interestingly, this is now spilling over three years 21 22, 22, 23. And now we are seeing in 23 24. So, we need to see you know, how long this honeymoon lasts because somewhere the tax buoyancy cannot keep on increasing on a year-on-year basis.
0: So, you know, recently we had a case with Vodafone where the court told the income tax department and hauled them up. Firstly, collected the tax and then not refunded it. And it was a large sum, thousand crore rupee for a company which is in financial trouble. What's your sense? I mean, where are we, in a very broad journey, I know this can take hours in itself, but as we stand in November 2023, how are we on that count?
1: I think, there have been isolated instances where, personally, in my view, when I read the news or I interact with some of our sensitive client situations, I see that the tax administration does cross that Lakshman Rekha and impinges on what we call it taxpayer rights. In 2020, the government legislated taxpayer rights, which means that it codified a right like many, many mature economies have. I think we will do well in administration. And this is a good time to do it because we are seeing an increase in tax collection to implement the taxpayer rights. The Vodafone example, as I read the judgment, seems like a clear violation of taxpayer rights. And these are some of the instances that tend to catch the attention of the investors where they then start questioning the certainty factor as well. Whether this is an isolated instance or not, but here is a case of a significant investor in India, which is facing a challenge where the court has to actually go and reprimand the tax administration for refunding the money. But we are seeing that increasing trend happening and you call it overzealousness, you call it over enthusiasm, but somewhere there has to be checks and balances within the administration to curtail such practices. Right, Mukesh. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Govin.
0: Indian students are strong the United States. So, all the visa challenges and the increased tax collections at source, not to mention scrutiny is slowing down the flow of Indian students overseas and particularly at this point to the United States. And interestingly, India has overtaken China for the first time since 2009-10 in this department. The United States still remains the top choice for higher education for Indians, the well-known Open Doors report cited, and I will explain what that is in a moment. For the academic year 2022-23, the number of Indian students in the United States jumped 35%, reaching a record 268,000 or almost a quarter of some 1 million students studying in the United States. Moreover, the undergraduate student population has also jumped 16%, which means Students who are going to study the equivalent of a BSc or a BA or a BCom has also jumped sharply, as opposed to the earlier days where students would go typically from India to study for their master's. During June to August 2023, which is typically the student visa season, the U.S. Embassy and consulates in India apparently granted a record high number of student visas. In India, consular staff granted about 95,000 visas in the F, M and J categories, which is up 18% over the same time frame. Now, the Open Doors report on international educational exchange is an annual census of international students in the United States and goes back to 1919, which tells you something about the attraction of the U.S. educational system for the world and obviously how long it's been there. Open Doors, incidentally, is considered a comprehensive information resource on international students and scholars in the United States and on U.S. students studying abroad. Big orders at the Dubai Air Show. Dubai's Fly Dubai on Monday placed an order for 30 Boeing 7879 Dreamliners worth about $11 billion at the Dubai Air Show on Monday, diversifying its current fleet of all Boeing 737 aircraft. Why are we talking about it? Because Fly Dubai joins Emirates, which placed a mega order from Dubai's flagship carrier Emirates for 95 Boeing aircraft worth $52 billion, which we mentioned yesterday. And Emirates and Fly Dubai, of course, fly to several destinations in India. And fly Dubai, by the way, had placed its first-ever orders for 50 Boeing 737 aircraft in 2008. From the seller's side, Boeing stole the show on the first day, bagging both the biggest deals of the day, reported Khaleech Times. The Dubai carrier said it was still evaluating engine options for its first Dreamliner order. Remember, the Dreamliners are much bigger aircraft. Most of the aircraft that fly, if not all, to India are the smaller 737 and it's more of a no-frills airline at that level. I'm not sure if that's changing but big dreamliners does suggest that there could be a change there. And it's time for cricket. This week, we'll see the semi-finals and finals of the World Cup to be played in Mumbai and Ahmedabad. India will play New Zealand in the semi-finals. Like in previous weeks, I reached out to well-known sports writer and commentator Ayaz Memon to get his take on the lessons so far beyond cricket and into business and life, as well as his outlook on the games ahead. Memon highlights the importance of preparation and practice in general and in specific reference to India, and how the Indian team has done well and quite admirably on both counts. So, I began by asking him, as always, how he was seeing the landscape right now in this final home stretch. It's looking
2: actually going very good for India. You know, I mean, I'll throw in a caveat here. This is sport. Anything can happen. As they say, expect the unexpected. But the manner in which India has been performing right through the league stage, Nine matches, nine victories, and each one better than the other or bigger than the other. So, it shows that the team is really primed for success. As I said earlier, I've thrown a caveat. Remember, we lost to New Zealand in the 2019 semi-final. Won just a half an hour of poor session. And that was it. That was kaput. So, India need to watch out. Because ultimately, in the last four... Actually, the tournament for India begins now. Whatever has happened is in the past. For all the four teams. So... You know, you have to live in the moment, as they say, to use another cliche and play as they've done so far.
0: So, I Ayaz, just a quick look back. What are the big lessons or the key lessons from the game so far? Also, I'm assuming you'll include the famous Afghanistan-Australia match.
2: Afghanistan versus Australia was, in a sense, before the match, it was a mismatch because Australia were expected to steamroll over Afghanistan. Not that Afghanistan are, you know, absolute rookies now, not in white ball cricket because they've been playing well for the last four, five, six years. And they had beaten England and Pakistan and Sri Lanka, all of whom were past winners. But they had the chances, two catches dropped, and then you lose the match. I think that's the biggest learning for them and for anybody else. That in any environment, you know, I mean, you have to be an opportunist to seize it. And especially when you're in such a strong position, you've got a very big opponent on the mat. And then a momentary lapse of concentration, one little error where skill is concerned, a basic skill like taking a catch, and you're out. So that's the big learning. I think also the learning from the other teams, especially from India, I think. And this contrasts with what happened to Pakistan and England, who, when the tournament started, were amongst the teams expected to make the last four. So India's preparation for the tournament has been, I think, exceptional. How oh, They've identified the players, the kind of combination they've chosen, the depth and balance they provided to the side. I think that a lot of credit accrues to Rahul Ravid, the chief coach, captain Rohit Sharma, and chief selector, Ajit Agarka, I think they've worked in a sense, you know, they've worked out in alchemy, which has delivered results for India. And look at it, in the nine matches that India has played, I can't spot a single area of bother or weakness. You know, the batting, the bowling, the fielding, how to deal with the crisis, how to emerge. From the first match, we were two runs for three wickets in the first match against Australia. Imagine if you have to lose the first match in the campaign, you're on the back foot. But they won it strongly and thereafter they have not looked back. So the preparation, I think, and then you improvise as you go along. I think the captaincy of Rohit Sharma has been fantastic. And how the senior players, Rohit Sharma himself, Virat Kohli, Mohammad Shami, Jaspreet Bumrah, Ravindra Jadeja, they've performed. It's not just Shubhman Gill, Shriyas Ayer, Mohammad Siraj. These are some of the youngsters, but the regulars, because the onus is so much on them. And each one has delivered what was expected
0: so since you mentioned oldies and many of them are retired in some form or the other from other forms of cricket so what's the lesson there if any i mean is it is it because they've been practicing or continuing to practice they focused early
2: and very hard on this campaign they started their preparations i think maybe about 2 years back you know in right earnest i mean you still plan 4 years from you know it's a 4 the cycle is 4 years the world cup every 4 years but i think they started and after the setback, I would imagine after the setback in the 2021 T20 World Cup, which was the Middle East where we lost. And thereafter, we've lost again. We lost the WTC final, the, worst, the World Test Championship final. So, there's been lots of learnings along the way. Injuries to key players, Jasprit Bumra, KL Rahul, Shreyas Ayer. How they have all come back from injury. And then Virat Kohli emerging from that staggering run of poor form, almost three years, for him to now be the highest scorer so far in the World Cup is quite an extraordinary achievement. I just wanted to contrast this with what's happened with England and Pakistan, go with because I think there are lessons to be learned there. Pakistan's whole focus now, when I look back, seemed to be in the match against India. But that's not playing the competition. That's playing an opponent. There's so much hype around the match that, you know, if they'd won that match, then we won the tournament. It was almost like that kind of a thought. While India actually approached it differently, they saw Pakistan as one more opponent we have to beat along the way. Of course, if we beat them, it's great, but it's not winning the tournament. And I thought that Pakistan was very lackluster in their approach. There just seemed to be no no thought given to how they would play in this. And remember, they're also from the subcontinent, familiar with the conditions. So, yes, their players don't play the IPL like players from Australia, New Zealand, England do. But Pakistan and Indian conditions are not very different. I just thought that mentally, they were a little. Not little. They were very namby-pamby. There was no, you know, assertion of cricketing skills. pusillanimous approach, which I think was, led, was the letdown. dog. But England is concerned. They did all kinds of shindigs, you know. I mean, Ben Stokes unretired himself from one day cricket to be part of this team. He's the best player in the world. And then, you know, he didn't play the first three matches. You know, in the assumption that England as defending champions, they are so good that... They will steamroll over two, three opponents. This guy, you know, strokes can rest a bit and recover from some lingering injury or whatever he might have. But by the time he recovered and took the field, you know, they were halfway through the tournament in a dire state. So, I think there are lots of lessons to be learned from there that you can't take things for granted. I think they were a little too cocky England, believing that they've got the right mantra for ODI cricket because they had won the last time and they would trample over opponents like Afghanistan, which didn't happen.
0: We've got two semi-finals, obviously, this week. And what are you really, I won't say betting on, because that's, I guess, taking a call. But what's the match that you're watching out more keenly?
2: Certainly India versus New Zealand, because, uh, you know, I mean, India is a home team. And the kind of magnificent run that they've had. India were expected to win when the tournament started, because they're playing at home. It's a, It was number one ranked team, so to speak. But rankings really don't matter. Pakistan in between was number one for a fair while. If you just get... Obsessed by rankings, you might end up losing matches, which is what has happened with Pakistan and with even with England to an extent. But India versus New Zealand, it's a bit of a grudge match. You want to, you know, kind of exact some revenge for what happened in 2019. We lost in the semifinals there. We were favorites even then. And the other match, of course, is Australia versus South Africa. Now, South Africa have been a bit up and down. When they've done well, they've done brilliantly. Australia, after losing two matches, they've been on a surge. They've won the next seven. They're so used to winning Google because they're five times former champions. So, Australia is a really tough nut to crack. I suspect at this point in time, it looks like an in India or it should be an India-Australia final. But hey, we don't know. This is sport.
0: <laughs> okay, then I, I think you, I've got you to answer the question without asking it. In the India-New Zealand match, just the last one, the bowling or the batting, what would you be betting on?
2: So, the good thing about India's performance this year has been both the departments have clicked wonderfully. It's also true of New Zealand, you know, that's the interesting part because both teams, India and New Zealand, they've shown great all-round depth. You know, New Zealand's batting has clicked, the bowling has clicked, they've got spinners, India's got quality spinners. I think batting Rohit Sharma, Virat Kohli, KL Rahul in form is a formidable lineup. and also add Chubman Gill and Shreya Saya, and then Jadeja as the all-rounder. And then you've got Bumran, Shami and Siraj and Kuldi Byadav with all his mystery stuff. It's a fantastic, it's the best ever Indian side that has played one-day cricket, in my opinion. Whatever happens in the semi-final or the final. I see that you can't pick batting or bowling. But I'll wind up with what is also another cliche that batsmen will new matches and bowlers will new tournaments.
0: <laughs> That's I guess it is a cliche in cricketing world, but I at least to me, it's uh, it's new. So, and it's a good one to remember. Thank you so much, Ayaz. I know you're going to be watching all the matches in person. So all the very best and speak soon. Take care. Thanks, Govin. Bye-bye. And that's it for me for today. We are in Diwali season till Wednesday and are taking, along with the stock markets, a holiday today. So there will be no fresh episode tomorrow. That's Wednesday morning. But we will be back on Thursday morning. So see you then and bye for now. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in, that is, www.thecore.in, or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at Thank you for listening.